Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, if you have a phone, will you make sure it's off? If you uh, happen to have an unruly infant, you can step right outside here and there's a TV screen. If you have a neighbor that's unruly, you can get him in a headlock and tell him to pay attention. Uh, anyway, we're excited to begin this new year because we have a new series called A Happy New Year. And actually, what we're finding out is that there are certain standard New Year's resolutions that people have about this time. Four of the top. Number one, exercise more, okay? Number two, get organized. Number three, have some kind of new activity or some new skill or hobby. Number four, quit some kind of uh, activity like smoking or something that's a, 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 something you want to get out of your life. And if you think about these New Year's resolutions, really behind them is something very similar. You know, if you want to exercise more, why do you do that? You want to do that so you feel better, so that you are more happy. If you want to organize your life, you want to organize it so that you feel better. Your life makes more sense. It's clear. You're happy. Uh, if you want to learn a new skill or a hobby, you want to enjoy life better, you want to be happy. If you quit some kind of habit, you do that so that you spend less money on cigarettes or whatever it is and that you have more money in your bank account, you're more happy. Basically, every, every people that study this kind of stuff know that behind the itch, you know, if you, if you really look behind it, uh, there is this drive and desire to be happy. A lot of our mundane practices really behind them is some kind of pursuit of happiness. When this sermon is over and some of you go out there and you decide you're going to have a donut hole, <laughs> you're going to do it so you can be happy. And some of you are going to say no to the donut hole because you want to be skinny this year and you're going to do it to be happy. But happiness is driving these decisions. So as we begin this series, I want to start with one assumption, which is you want to be happy, okay? That I think we can to all take for uh, as a starting point. The second assumption is maybe not as uh, easy to grasp for some of us. It's that God wants you to be happy. Okay, not only do you want to be happy, but God wants you to be happy. Now, now, if you just heard that, maybe you're thinking, "Oh, here comes the prosperity church." Okay, here comes the here comes the, you know God wants you to be rich and you know have a speedboat and you know no, I'm not going there. Okay, and in fact, I grew up with a certain expression, which was God is concerned with our holiness and not our happiness. And, and entering into this series, I've had to rethink that a little bit. Okay, I've had to rethink that a little bit because. I'm not sure that's entirely accurate. I do think that God is more concerned with our long-term happiness than our immediate pleasure, okay? But the Bible clearly teaches us that God wants us to be happy. First off, the Bible gives us a picture of a God who is very happy. God in God's triunity, in God's beautiful triunity, triune fellowship, lives in abundant joy, Many, many people think when they read scripture that, that creation itself was this overflow of the joy and the, and, the, and the beauty and the love of God's triune fellowship. So we have a God who is eternally happy. The Bible tells us that Jesus came in order to introduce us into this kind of life, this life of abundant joy and happiness. Jesus came to give us this kind of life. The Bible makes unblushing promises about God's desire for happiness for us. Uh, here's one, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Yes, we could go on. But really, the Bible tells us that God wants us to have a certain disposition of deep satisfaction and joy and contentment. Okay? 
But also, I think, uh, you know, one of the reasons why um, we need to get beyond that cliche that God's not concerned with our happiness but our holiness is because there's built into that a certain definition of happiness that I think is out of touch with the long history of how thinkers, philosophers, theologians have understood happiness. You know, happiness has been, uh, you know, historically understood as a certain kind of disposition of contentment, of gratitude, of peace, of well-being. And so uh, this kind of life, this kind of internal life that the Bible really, it lines up with what the Bible calls joy. So out of the gate, I've given you two working assumptions for this series, okay? Number one, you want to be happy, I want to be happy. Number two, God wants us to be happy, okay? All right? But here's the third one. You and I are not great at knowing what will make us happy. <laughs> okay? And there's a lot of uh, research that's come out in the last few decades on happiness, okay? Probably one of the leaders in this has uh, been a Harvard cognitive psychologist by the name of Daniel Gilbert. And Gilbert's done a lot of research on the area of, of happiness. He's a happiness expert, right? Don't you want to know that guy? Like, can you come into my life and just assess my happiness and improve my happiness? He's a happiness expert. And he's argued extensively that our minds are ill-equipped, ill-equipped for determining future emotional states. So this is why it's important. See, most of us know what will make us, what we think, what we want, okay? We know what we want, all right? We want, we want to retire early, you know, we want, uh, you know, the, the, we want the, maybe we want the Dodgers to win the World Series. You know, we want, uh, we know we want, a, you know, maybe we want the new uh, iPhone. Maybe we want, uh, you know, a vacation house by the beach or in the mountains. I mean, it wouldn't be hard. I could pull any one of you up here and say, what do you want? And you could just go and go and go and go and go. And I could too. We know what we want. And we also know what we don't want. We don't want to be attacked by a bear while hiking. We don't want someone to break into our garage and steal our bikes. We don't want to, you know, we don't want our good friend to turn on us. I mean, we could just go on and on and on of things we don't want. So we know what we want and what we don't want. But what we're not good at knowing is that predicting how we're going to experience life once we get what we want or we don't want. See, that's the key. Why is this? Well, Gilbert says it's because we're operating on an outdated assumption about happiness. See, Gilbert notes that in the Declaration of Independence, it says we've been endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And Gilbert points out that when the founding fathers talked about happiness, they didn't think about it the same way we do. They didn't think of it as something that was difficult to acquire. You know, throughout the history of mankind, by and large, life has been a difficult, difficult venture, okay? Life has been hard. You know, you had to work long hours, you know, you had to you break your back, you had to do whatever you, need, you needed to do in order to get food, which was scarce, in order to survive. So when the founding fathers thought about the pursuit of happiness, they thought that people should be free to pursue the things that are necessary for life. But in the last 300 years, Gilbert talks about the fact we've had a series of revolutions. We had the agricultural revolution. Okay, we just take modern supermarkets for granted, okay? But before the agricultural revolution, there were no supermarkets, okay? 
So you didn't have this readily you know, available supply of food. We, you know, we've had the Industrial Revolution. Before the Industrial Revolution, it was manual labor. You wanted something, you had to build it. You had to use your hands, okay? We've had the information, our technological revolution more recently, in which we have information on tap. So what we've had is that all the things that used to be underneath the, the idea of survival in order to get the necessity of life, which was then equated with happiness, all that has been filled up and replete. We should be the happiest people in the world. We should be living in a Shangri-La land. We should, you should be looking at your neighbors in their, you know, in their car with supermarkets and the computers in our pockets. We should be just brimming with happiness, right? Based on all these revolutions. But we're not. We're not. And the reason is, is because happiness ultimately is not banking on these kind of things, okay? People get all the things they want in terms of these items, right? Whether it's consumer products or uh, whether all these kind of things, it, it's not making them happy. So the road to happiness is not what we kind of intuitively think. It's not what we assume. The road to happiness is something else. And that's what we're going to look at this morning because there's a problem. The problem is that we as Americans don't know what we should aim for when it comes to happiness. We don't know what we should aim for. We don't know what we should aim for and define what the philosophers and theologians and thinkers through history have called happiness, what the Bible associates with joy. In other words, we don't understand what will make us happy. And that's what we're going to be looking at for the next three weeks. To assist us in this journey, we're going to be drawing from one of the most joyful, the happiest books in the entire Bible. And it's written by one of the happiest men in the ancient world. That book is Philippians, and that man is the Apostle Paul. Now, where does Paul get this happiness? That is the mystery in Philippians, because Paul is writing in prison. He's awaiting to hear whether or not he's going to be executed. And in four short chapters, he uses the word joy 14 times. The guy is brimming, just exploding with happiness. It's bizarre. This is a great test case. This is a great test case. So that's what we're going to look at. You know, where does he get this contentment, this calm, this inner disposition, this happiness? Where does Paul get this? You know, in our passage alone today that Jenna so beautifully read, four times Paul mentions his chains, his imprisonment, and six times he mentions joy. Chains and joy. Chains and joy. Not typically coming together in our minds, right? Not typically what you put together. And if we were to actually put this into a math equation, it might look like this. Chains plus X equals joy. What was this X factor? Some of you, like math and science people, I tell you to smile right now. I caught you. Right? I'm trying to speak your language. All right? I'm not a math person. I'm trying. All right? What was the X factor for Paul? What was that factor? Chains plus something else equals joy. How did that happen? All right? That's what we're going to look at in this series. And this morning, we're going to start with what I believe was at the heart of Paul's happiness. The heart of Paul's happiness. And what was that? That was Paul's outlook on life. And here's three things we're going to look at. Paul saw the hardness of life. Paul saw the alchemy of life. 
And Paul saw the definition of life. And we're going to walk through these three things this morning in order to see the X factor, the X factor that gave Paul a certain joy, a certain contentment, a certain disposition of calm and happiness, even in the face of being in a Roman prison, which, by the way, you can go online, you can Google. They think they know the prison that Paul was in. It doesn't look good. It looks more like a sewage wasteland, right? And yet Paul had this joy. So we're going to look at that this morning to see where Paul got this deep sense of contentment. And the first thing we see is that Paul saw the hardness of life. Philippians 1.12 starts off with, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me. Let's stop right there. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me. Okay, what, who is this? Who's, what? Paul is writing to the Philippians. Little, little context. He's writing a letter to a group of Christians in Philippi. Okay? And these were his friends. These were people who had heard that Paul had been thrown in jail. Actually, when Paul was in Philippi, he was thrown in jail, but he got out. But then later on, he gets thrown in jail again. He's eventually in jail again. They're concerned. They're concerned for their pastor. If you heard, you know, Josh Watson's in Europe today, okay? He's, I think he's in Holland right now, okay? He might be at my mentor's house. I don't know. He might be at Utrecht. I don't know where he's at, okay? But we'll find out. But if you heard that Josh got thrown in prison, I hope you'd be concerned, Right? I hope you'd be like, what's going on? Are you going to get out of there? What happened? You know? Okay. Um, that's kind of silly, but this is a real situation for a lot of Chinese Christians today. If you've been reading the news. Okay? This, this you know, the, the Chinese government has thrown a lot of pastors. There are a lot of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world right now who are just like the church in Philippi saying, what's happened? What's going on? What's going to happen to our pastor? Right? So this was the situation. And so Paul has these, uh, these, these Christians who are concerned. They sent Epaphroditus. They collected money, the, a, a care package for Paul. They sent Epaphroditus as an envoy. Go tell us how Paul is. Find out what's going on. And so Paul uh, has Epaphroditus come. And Epaphroditus says the Philippian church is very concerned. So Paul starts by saying, I want you to know what has happened to me. And what has happened to Paul? I mean, really, Paul's in a Roman prison from 60 to 62 AD, we believe. But a lot of things have led up to this. You can read this in the book of Acts. I think in, in chapter 21 is where it begins. We learn that Paul was arrested under a false accusation that he was, that he was breaking the Jewish law, which wasn't true. He's brought to some kangaroo court. It's, it's a complete mistrial. And then they want to kill him. So then they take him to another place. And then he languishes in Caesarea for a while. He finally gets a hearing. But again, he's not even given a fair trial. Then eventually, he's put on a boat to go to Rome in order to get a fair trial. But on the long, along the way, he gets in a shipwreck as if life wasn't hard enough, right? And then after the shipwreck in which he nearly dies, he finally gets to arrive in a Roman prison. I mean, it's been good times for Paul by the time he writes this, you know? I mean, any one of those things would spin me off into depression. I don't know about you, right? But Paul's just had a series of bad things, you know? Shipwrecks and languishing and mobs and false accusations and people wanting to kill him and having plots on his life. And it's, and it's even more. There's even, a, there's even a, a, more of a twist on this thing. Because Paul was one of the greatest church planners, possibly the greatest church planner in the history of the church. The greatest evangelist. You know, Paul had this capacity, this constellation of gifts, where he would go into a town and Paul would immediately begin having dialogue. 
He'd go into a Jewish synagogue, he would go into the Areopagus, he'd go into a public space, and he'd begin talking about Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the raised Messiah, the, the world's true king. And as Paul would do this, people would hear the gospel, and they would be con convinced that Jesus was indeed God's promised Messiah, and they would become converted. And once there was enough people, Paul then would start a church there. And then he would go on to the next city, and the next city, and the next city. And Paul was creating churches like crazy. And yet, Paul finds himself stuck. Paul finds himself stuck in a Roman jail. It was like the brakes got hit. Why? This is one of those things where you're like, really, God? Why? Are you scuttling your own operation? Like, what good does this do in terms of your own operation? Where, what, what, what would you do if you're in this situation? What would I do? How would we respond if we we're going through it? Angry at God? Confused? Depressed? What's amazing is Paul's attitude. This is just amazing. This is dumbfounding. Paul's attitude. The amazing thing is that although Paul is experiencing so much difficulty, all kinds of suffering, throughout his letters, Paul is never surprised. Paul's never surprised. We never see Paul going, what the, what's going on? And why is that? It's almost as if Paul expected to suffer as a Christian. He just thought that was part of the deal. And in fact, that's exactly what Paul thought. And the reason he thought that was because Jesus Christ himself said, in this world, you will have tribulation. You will suffer. Life is going to be hard. We read in the book of Acts that when Paul left a new congregation, he said this, it's through many tribulations that you'll enter the kingdom of God. That's kind of setting expectations, isn't it? You know, if, as soon as people signed up, got the church together, he would, just, just FYI, this is not going to be an easy road. <laughs> okay? I love it. I don't love it, but I love it, all right? So, you know, Peter says to Jesus' disciples, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal that's come upon you as something strange is happening. This is what you've signed up for. See, the biblical vision of happiness is not disconnected from the real warp and woof of the brokenness of this world. It's not some kind of pie-in-the-sky silver lining where we all just sing Jesus songs until we just numb out to the realities of the world. That wasn't Paul's MO, and that's not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The road to resurrection goes through the cross, and Christians knew that, and Paul knew that. There will come a day in which God will bring his kingdom, in which everything in this world that eats away at us, that causes grief and sorrow, the tensions, the international conflict, the conflict on our families... The, the turmoil, it will be gone. We have to open our imagination because of the unblushing promises the Bible gives. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want to let you know, the only way you're going to buy this Kool-Aid is you have to open up your imagination in ways you never thought you could. And that's only possible by God's help. Okay? All right? Because the Bible makes incredible unblushing promises of what will happen when Jesus comes back and brings his kingdom. But here and now, that has not happened yet. But that doesn't mean we cannot have a deep and residing 
happiness in the face of it all. So, what this means is, is that the Christian life is at least as difficult as some of the other ventures that we take up. You know, if you get yourself into, into, a, into a, a new business, you launch a new business, or you get married, or you start a new PhD program, or whatever this big venture is, there's always this immediate sense of like lift, right? You're just so stoked, you know, especially if you get married, you know, or I remember when I first started my, my dual PhD program, that was a mistake, but you know, you're just so like, wow, this is awesome, you know, I'm so excited, I get to study all this stuff, you know, students, you know, the first, the first day of the semester, you know, you, you get all your books, like, I'm going to read all this, I'm going to learn all this, and then guess what happens? <laughs> guess what? You are going to read all that, <laughs> and those assignments are going to be due, and you did marry a sinner, you know, I know you, you thought that was all theory. No, that's not theory. That's what you did, you know. And Paul knew when he went to follow Jesus that Jesus said, look what they did to me. You know, the foxes ha have dens and the birds have places to, to lay there. But look at my life. Don't think it's going to be any easier for you. But what happens is, is that when we, when we start something oftentimes and we, we begin it, Whatever it is, maybe it's New Year's and you're thinking, okay, I, less sugar or more exercise or, you know, I'm going to cut this. What happens is you're going to fail. I'm going to fail. You're going to struggle. And all of the research shows that if you are not ready to process in your own failure and your difficulty, you're not going to make it. Proverbs says, a righteous man falls seven times and gets back up. And some of you need to get back up. It's New Year's for crying out loud, right? It's New Year's. So set your expectations. That's what Paul did. Paul set his expectations so he wasn't shocked. He wasn't surprised, okay? So that was the first thing that helped Paul have this kind of disposition. He had a realistic expectation of what it meant to follow Jesus. But the second thing is this. Paul saw the alchemy of life, the alchemy of life. What is alchemy? Alchemy was this medieval first attempt at chemistry, okay? It was a failed enterprise, but it was basically this, this aim, and one of the, the chief aims of alchemy was to turn base metals into precious metals, whether it's lead or zinc or aluminum, and turn that into platinum or silver or gold. And, and alchemy, uh, it was a failed enterprise, but as the 17th century Bible commentator, Matthew Henry, makes the point, uh, what is impossible for man is possible with God. God is the only real alchemist. God is the only one that can take the base things in our lives and turn them into something of great value. And Paul rejoices because Paul sees that God is taking the base, the terrible things in his life, the things that you would just want to discard and ignore it, and somehow God could turn that stuff into gold. Paul says in verse 12, I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served the advance of the gospel. You know, those who put Paul in jail did it for one reason. They wanted to stop the advance of the gospel. They wanted to shut Paul up. They wanted to stop this message. They wanted to end it. And Paul says the irony is, is that it's actually advancing the gospel. It's actually advancing the gospel. Paul says this is happening in a number of ways. First, he says in verse 13, it has come to be known throughout the whole imperial guard and the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. This is one of the best little vignettes, little stories in the Bible. Here's Paul, the greatest evangelist known to man, 
And he has chained up next to him in a constant rotation guards from Caesar's imperial palace. Okay? All right? One, every three to four hours, we know that was the shift. All right? And Paul just, and, and here they come. And I'm sure that they stay, they're like, okay, what are you in for? You know, murder, you know, rape, tax evasion, what is it? He's like, you know, let me tell you what I'm in here for. I believe that Nero is a sham. He calls himself the world's true Lord and Savior, but there actually is a true Lord and Savior who was raised from the dead, and I have witnessed this one firsthand. And he is the only one that is going to bring true peace to this world. He's the only one that is going to bring true life. He's the only one whose promises we can trust. And they're like, oh yeah, that's dangerous stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's insurrection. We know why you're in here now. And then they would go tell their buddies, like, man, have you been with the guy over in cell block C? Wow, that is something else that guy believes. Can you believe that? And then one after the next, but guess what would happen? One after the next, after that, one by one, these imperial guards. And by the way, these guys were heavy hitters, okay? When there was insurrection, when there was a coup, guess who oftentimes led the coup? The Praetorian. This was, these weren't just like lowlifes, okay? These were people who had power in the Roman Empire, and they were deeply connected to the, the center of power and to Caesar. And one by one, these guys are turning into Christians. Paul's thinking, I never could have invented this. I never could have invented this. And so Paul rejoices because members of Caesar's own household are turning to faith. In fact, at the end of the letter, Paul writes, the believers in Rome greet you. And I think Paul had like kind of a tongue in cheek when he says this. And all the believers from Caesar's household greet you. Do you realize what a coup this is? Caesar's own people are claiming that Jesus is the true Lord and Savior, not Caesar. It's, it's, I'm sure Paul was kind of like, whoa, all right. But Paul goes on, he says, not only do we have these guards that are flipping, but also believers are emboldened by Paul's own witness. Verse 14, most of the brothers and sisters, having heard about my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the gospel without fear, okay? So they're looking at Paul's courage and his boldness, and they're saying, wow, I can do that. I mean, if he can, if, if he's willing, I mean, the guy's on death row and he's just not going to shut up for Jesus. <laughs> and what do I got? Nothing. I got nothing to lose here. Like they're emboldened by, and who's going to be emboldened by our example? Now, I watched a little documentary on um, Billy Graham this week. Wow. That man, just his courage. You know, he did some things that were not cool for everybody. He, I think he went behind the Roman, uh, behind the Iron Curtain right? And everyone's like, what are you doing? What are you doing talking to Russians? He's like, I'm not here for America. I'm not here for, I'm here to preach the gospel. And his boldness there just like, you know, and wherever he went, he would do things that he didn't care. He was all about the gospel and getting the gospel out. And Paul has this kind of like boldness. He just wants to get the gospel out. And that then emboldens others. And then finally, and this is really interesting, God even uses those who have bad motives. There, there were some in Rome who were a part of ministry who had bad motives. They had a spirit of competition. And when they heard that Paul was knocked out of ministry, they're like, we can grow our churches. Let's start up in our preaching of the gospel. Get some more people in here. 
hey, listen, I know that's kind of depressing, but Christianity has had corruption even from the beginning, right? There's always going to be people that see a little window of opportunity for their own advancement. And you know what Paul says? I don't care. He says, it doesn't matter to me. I love this. He says, he says, only that in any way, in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I will rejoice. And you think, well, that's really nice, Paul. You got a good attitude on that one. No, I actually think that Paul believes that. You know, I, 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 uh, when I was 20, I, I went on a, a missions trip with one of the, the strongest evangelists in Holland, actually, um, at that time, and, and I, he's still going strong. But uh, I asked him his testimony, and he said, you know, he wasn't a Christian. He went to a bar one night to drink. There was a backslidden uh, Christian who had abandoned his faith, and while he was drunk, he inadvertently shared the gospel to my friend, and he went home and prayed to receive Christ. The power of God is in the gospel. It's not in us. It's not in our persuasive coolness or that we just look so great or whatever. The power of God is in the gospel, and Paul's like, hey, whatever their motives are, the gospel gets out. The power of God is in the gospel. So Paul rejoices because God is taking the base things and he's turning them into gold, evangelizing Caesar's household, emboldening believers, even the envy of Paul's rivals. God uses that for his own glory. Now, there is a moment here we need to stop, okay, and have some clarity. Just, I want to clarify something here. You know, oftentimes when something bad, when we get the base metal in our lives, oftentimes I hear Christians doing one of two things. Either Christians rail against God or they say, you know, that, 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 that God is at work here. And here's what I want to clarify. You know, I'm not really, I don't think that's what Paul's doing. I think that Paul is not making a one-to-one correlation between the base metal and the precious metal. See, both of those strategies make God responsible for the evil that is happening. And that's not what we do. We don't immediately say, often we like to quote Romans 8, 20, God causes all things to work together for good but we forget the rest of it for those who are called according to his purpose, okay? And so sometimes there's, there are things in our lives that happen, and there is no way in which we can correspond it to some kind of good. And when Christians immediately jump to that, I think it's dangerous because there is evil in this world. There are bad things. It wasn't a good thing that Paul was thrown in jail. The shipwreck was not a good thing. God was not wrecking ships. God was not causing people to attack the gospel, God wasn't doing those things. God shows his own goodness and glory in that he somehow can bring good out of those things. But not everything in our lives, we immediately can make a connection, all right? And so that, you'll never hear me just immediately jump to God is doing this. Sometimes evil people are doing things. Evil people in our lives are doing things. But God, can, God is the alchemist that can bring good out of that. So what is the gold that God is bringing about, that Paul speaks of? What is that gold? What is it that Paul is, is so excited about? His release from prison? No. It's not his release from prison. It, it, you know, um, Paul says, well, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. The gold is not his own well-being. The gold that Paul is so excited about is the gospel. The Philippians come to Paul and say, Paul, how are you doing? Paul, we're so concerned. Paul, we're so concerned. You're in jail. How are you doing? We brought a gift. What's going on? If it would be, I'd be like, yeah, it's horrible. Thanks for coming, guys. I couldn't have made it another day. 
I've been so good for Jesus. And look at my life. What a wreck. Paul's like, it's going great. The gospel is spreading gangbusters. But Paul, how are you doing? It's going great. The gospel. But Paul, what about you? The, the gospel. Do you see what's going on here? Paul cannot distinguish his own identity from the gospel. Paul doesn't have his own life and then the gospel. Paul's life has become so deeply entangled in the gospel that when he thinks about how life is going, he can't help but think, how is the gospel going? This is so cool. And this, by the way, is key to the X factor. If you want joy 24-7, get your life wrapped up in the gospel. Get your life wrapped up in the announcement of what God has done in Jesus Christ. So Paul saw the hardness of life. He saw the alchemy of life. But thirdly, Paul saw the definition of life. It's interesting, you know, they want to know, are you going to get out of prison? And later on, Paul says, yeah, I think I, think I am going to get out of prison. But before he goes there, he opens up and he begins sharing about his definition of life. And look at what Paul says in verse 19. Yes, and I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers, this will turn out for my deliverance. This will turn out for my deliverance. Now, when you first read that, okay, you can read it as like Paul saying, yeah, yeah, pray for me. I'm going to get out of here. But his deliverance is something else. That word there actually is the word sozo, which is the word salvation. And Paul here is saying there's something broader going on that isn't so much about whether I get out. There's something God is doing that is completely at a different level than whether or not I'm out or I'm in, whether or not I live or I die. You see, Paul says that whether by life or death, verse 20, the gospel is going to be advanced. Paul says, it could be courageous martyrdom. This could turn out for good for me because I will die the death of a martyr, a courageous martyr. I will bear witness to Jesus even in my death. I will be able to speak and proclaim and live out boldly my faith and honoring Jesus Christ in my death. And that is a great good. Or he says, I might get out and I might continue to spend my blood and my sweat and my tears to help you advance in the gospel and to continue to share the gospel. And that is a great good. Again, because his life was lined up and tied up in the gospel. See, Paul's definition of life was his life was about being hid in Christ. His definition of life was Christ. His whole life was about being a part of this grand narrative that the creator was making all things new. And now he was a part of this adventure, this adventure of sharing this great news of redemption for me to live as Christ. And therefore, to have this gospel move forward, either through his own difficulties, even, even his own death, was what gave Paul tremendous joy. This was the X factor for Paul. Christ was the X factor for Paul. More specifically, it was a life centered and rooted in the message of what God had done in and through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This was the X factor for Paul. This message... Paul found his life centered in this story and it gave him such a deep joy and confidence and poise. In his book, uh, Seculosity, David Zoll 
uh, exposes one of the great myths of secularization. And that is that America is not losing its religious impulse. People are simply replacing the story of God's justification of us in Christ with other justifying stories. People still are looking for narratives that give their lives profound happiness and joy, but these stories always fall short. And as Christianity increasingly wanes in North America, and as the number of nuns rise, N-O-N-E-S, those who hold to no religious views whatsoever, the idea that there is some grand story, some cosmic narrative that we can be a part of increasingly disappears. And we are finding ourselves in a world of microplots where the only stories out there are about becoming affluent or self-actualized through our expression of whatever we think we are, or stories where we attach ourselves to political traditions such as conservatism or liberalism or libertarianism, and that gives our lives meaning, or stories where we find our meaning in our family. But these will never give us the grandeur that is in the human heart. These will never match what we were made for. We were made to be a part of something bigger. And Paul found that bigger. Paul found that bigger. And this is a message that America needs to hear. Our culture needs to hear. Is there anything bigger in your life? Is there anything bigger in your life than your business, than your relationships, than your parenting, than the newest technology, than your work, than your leisure, than your latest dining experience, than your views on politics? Is there anything bigger than simply an, an American life? Does your life have cosmic import? Sean Kelly, who is a Harvard philosopher, says, we've entered the age of nihilism. The most significant problem facing America is not nuclear war, a war with Iran, it's nihilism, the death of all meaning, the state where nothing seems any more important than anything else, where everything can be laughed at because there are no larger stories that therefore give import. In such a culture where there is no more grand meaning, no more adventures are to be had, and a state of malaise sets over the culture. This is our mission field. We rub shoulders with people that are attempting to find meaning and significance out of their family, out of their job, out of whatever recreation thing they have lined up next. This is our mission field. This is why movies are such a big deal. When you go to movies, it's the same thing over and over again. Somebody who's just living a humdrum life somehow gets attached to some kind of narrative that has cosmic significance, and they need to do something. They need to get the ring. They need to fight the empire. They need to do something. And all of us with nostalgia in North American culture think, oh, wow, can you imagine a life which was more than just simply living outside of the revolutions and having supermarkets and information and computers in our pockets? Like, what would that be like? It would be Paul's life. That's what it would be like. It would be a life that is simply wrapped up in the gospel, right? And what is gospel? Gospel means announcement. Announcement. The gospel of Jesus Christ announces that God has won the decisive cosmic victory. It reveals a narrative to this universe. It reveals a protagonist. It reveals a problem. And it says we can be a part of, and we've been invited to be a part of that. 
that God's gracious work in his son has touched everything and we can be a part of this. It goes way beyond identifying ourselves in our acquisitions, in our relationships, in our family, in our work, in our leisure pursuits, in our politics. It says that we can be rooted in the very story of God. What an honor, right? That's what this church is about, right? What an honor. What an honor we've been granted to be a part of this. And that's what, that's what we want for 2020, right? To enter more deeply into the calling we have as God's people. And if you're, if you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here this morning because you're hearing that God is at work in this world and you can be a part of what he's doing. Paul says, for me to live is Christ. But notice what's implicit there. All of us have something we live for. We can't help but do it. We are ethical creatures, we have ultimate values, and we inevitably hinge ourselves on some kind of value. We inevitably posit ourselves in terms of something that we live for. For me to live is security. For me to live is comfort. For me to live is reputation, our family, our experiences. But what do we do when our security is gone? What do we do when our bank account is empty? What do we do when our family is lying in a coffin? What do you do? You're vulnerable. When Paul said, for me to live is Christ, he knew he had tremendous security and nothing could touch him because his greatest treasure, his greatest identity was something that, as it says in Romans 8, nothing could separate him from. And I think this is what gave Paul such an incredible, incredible poise. And how did Paul get there? How did Paul get to the place where he could say, for me to live is Christ? Well, Paul knew that when Christ came, Christ lived in obedience to the Father so that he might bring us to glory. Christ lived with us in his mind, for Christ to live with us. And if Christ lived his life in radical obedience, when Christ faced the cross with us, and bringing us to glory in mind, how can we not live for him, right? So that melted Paul's heart. He wanted to give his whole life to serving and loving Christ, to living for Christ, to knowing Christ and making Christ known. This was what drove Paul's deep and residing happiness. Lord, you are so good. Lord, you have done everything we need in order to invite us into your life, life with you, Lord. Lord, we confess that we so often buy into the narratives that our life is found somewhere else than in you. But Lord, you again and again give us this table as a reminder that you spared nothing. You lived your life sparing nothing so that we could know your love, that we could be a part of what you're doing in this world. Lord, open our eyes in 2020 to the riches and the depth and the treasures we have and what you've accomplished for us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.